0: Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast explores a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students looking at issues in South Africa, Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Nosipho And my name is Mahita Ikani. And, and we're your
1: hosts. I'm Charles Basasi on the East Rand. I do not have medical aid. The uh, whole concept of medical aid, I believe, is a good product, but an unaffordable product. The problem is the public health system, while it has made strides towards providing care for South Africans, it simply cannot cope with providing the quality care expected for its citizens. A further problem is that there simply is no comparative alternative.
0: In this week's episode, our topic is medical aids, in general, but also how they work specifically in and for universities. As they are public institutions, does it make sense that universities rely on private health insurance? What are some of the economic and social justice questions that come up when thinking about how medical aids should be structured in universities and in society in general? Our guest today to explore these questions and more is Professor Alex Vandenheerwe. Vandenheerwe presently holds the Chair of Social Security Systems Administration and Management Studies at the University of the Wirtwatersrandt, and he's an adjunct professor in the Witt School of Governance. He holds a master's in economics from the University of Cape Town, and has worked in the areas of health economics and finance, public finance, and social security in various capacities over the past 23 years. These experiences have included participating in the Melamet Commission of Inquiry into Medical Schemes, the Taylor Committee of Inquiry into Comprehensive Social Security, and the Ministerial Task Team on Social Health Insurance. From 2000 to 2010, he worked as an advisor to the Council for Medical Schemes, which he was responsible for establishing, and in an advisory capacity. To the Social Security policy processes, including the Department of Social Development, the National Treasury, and the Interdepartmental Task Team on Social Security, taking forward the recommendations of the Taylor Committee. So, we have a highly qualified guest who knows all about medical aid and Social Security joining us today. So I'm really glad that we have you to talk to us at the moment because some kind of people like me who don't understand how the health insurance system functions really need people like you to explain it to us. So with this wealth of experience that you have of decades of working in the kind of governmental and policy sector about health, health insurance, health economics, I guess my first question is how did this whole medical aid this reliance that most middle-class South Africans have on medical aid, where did that come from? Where did that start? Because as far as I understood, especially with our new democratic constitution, right, it was it's a responsibility of the state to, reply, to uh, supply decent health care for citizens. So how is it that private medical insurance companies have so much power in the current landscape? The system
1: has largely evolved as a default system in which people who had to, pay, in any case, full cost, whether public or private, they had to have a medical scheme to cover it, because even upper-middle income people will not be able to afford out-of-pocket payments for a tertiary public sector facility. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's that's the reason why people have medical schemes. um, There's a tax regime that also exists. There was always a sort of a tax rebate provision for contributions to medical schemes which largely existed because of the way that the tax structure was organised, in that um, a large portion, the the way in which employers could provide a a tax subsidy to employees as a kind of boost to their income was to contribute toward their medical scheme or to subsidise their contribution. And uh, and, and that contribution, which was available through the employer contribution, that, that tax subsidy, meant that employers heavily subsidised the contributions of people into medical schemes. So that also meant that people formalised the coverage through the employee-employer
0: relationship. From a layperson's perspective listening, the question pops up for me, why would the government subsidise a lack of use of its services? Well, you would if,
1: if you want to have universal coverage. So if you're saying, well, in many countries the state service is not accessed by the entire population it won't be. on a preference basis it won't be used mm-hmm. by a large portion of income you know the nhs is a sort of an exception Our very very well-funded systems mm-hmm. will will kind of merge income groups into the mm-hmm. same system mm-hmm. but where you're looking at developing countries that doesn't happen the the there's uh, the differences in what people want in terms of mm-hmm. health coverage are too great and they would rather not use the state service but they are paying for it through their taxes, but they're not using it. Mm. So quite aside from anomalies mm. about whether or not government should just create the service and make it free to everybody, which in my view they should have already done. It wouldn't make much difference to its use, but it makes no sense to actually penalize somebody for having to fall into the state system. On the issue of, of the private system and the sort of the constitution, the section 27 right to health, government really does have an obligation. It doesn't have to fund your health care but it has to ensure you have coverage. Mm -hmm. So one of the problems with health insurance markets is that if you don't regulate them properly, they will exclude all the people who actually are sick. They will exclude old people, and they will exclude anybody with a pre-existing medical condition. So if you look at the chaos in the U.S. Mm -hmm. health policy debate, you will see that if uh, the Republicans had managed to pull back Obamacare, uh, a lot of the people who would have suffered most would be older people and people with pre-existing medical conditions. And they would have also stripped away mandatory minimum benefits, which they had introduced through Obamacare. In 1998, in South Africa, we introduced prescribed minimum benefits for medical schemes. So in order to give people the right, that universal access right, you have to compensate for what the market won't do on its own, and it will strip out, it will cut cover, it will prejudice you in terms of coverage, particularly if you're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And that is a what's regarded internationally as sort of a systemic consequence of unregulated health insurance markets. They they converge on a on a very undesirable result of excluding people from the, the most vulnerable from access, and nobody, if you don't. Regulated, nobody will have lifetime cover Mm. in an environment Mm. where the state can't provide your Mm. your full coverage. So the state service is actually not available for income earners. That's the reality. It is not available for that extra group of people. It's not big enough. Mm. It's not well resourced. It's not sufficiently well managed. It's not placed in the right areas. Mm. It's it's not available. So essentially, you have people have to buy all their cover in the private sector, even if they're contributing taxes toward the state service. Um, so the, the issue is how do you protect people in an environment where they have to access an insurance market? And in terms of the constitution, um, a, a, an appropriate reading of it would say that, God, that the government must regulate that environment so that you can access it. It doesn't have to fund it for you, but it must create the institutional environment that allows you to access the market without discrimination.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, uh, so that's, that's sort of kind of contextualising mm-hmm. the sort of issues. The private sector, we, we have to deal with and we have to deal with giving people access to it. We have to regulate it properly. There is an issue that it's not regulated properly at mm-hmm. this point in
0: time. So if I understand, correctly, the kind of system in South Africa is we see a kind of dual provision of healthcare, like a private and a public system that functions almost in parallel and alongside one another, and they seem to be quite, I mean, I think many of us just know from experience, like if someone gets sick or if someone has an accident, you kind of know what kind of hospital you'll go to, and it all depends on whether you've got the medical aid or not, right? So there seems to also be this kind of socioeconomic grouping of that healthcare, that the public state-provided healthcare goes to those who either don't have insurance or have enough money to pay for it up front, whereas the private goes to those who are income earners. So it's been helpful to understand that that system has always actually existed in South Africa. But I guess the question that comes up for me is, like you said, what kinds of protection do we get? Do we get protection as consumers or as citizens in terms of accessing that health? And it starts to get fuzzy when we start to conceptualize ourselves as, conceptualize ourselves as consumers of a kind of insurance product rather than as citizens who deserve certain rights. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on whether those two worlds can ever in- intersect or meet. Well, they, they, they essentially do have to meet in that in that. The,
1: the, and, and, and where they meet and how they meet is fundamentally dependent on government. And uh, they won't meet if government doesn't get involved. And if government's a bad player in the environment, then they don't meet. The, uh, and so the rules of the game essentially have to be set up. So even if government isn't running everything, it does have to regulate it so that you, you have the right as a citizen or as a resident. To access healthcare, or just mm. whether or not you're an illegal resident or not, you have access to healthcare. Mm. And uh, so the, the the right has to be confirmed through the way in which you structure things. So if a, if an insurer says, "Well, you're an old person and you're going to join, you want to join the scheme, and if you do, then I don't make as big a profit because my pricing is, mm. is undermined." then the regulatory framework must address that type of inherent discrimination that will occur in a competitive market if left to itself. So there the issue is do you, how do you remove the discrimination that is inherent in the market. An insurance product that doesn't discriminate against you in a in an unregulated market will go bankrupt. So it's not just that they're bad people, that these are nasty profiteers. It's actually structural. They will go bankrupt if they don't discriminate against you and that's why on the one hand, government must mm-hmm. find a way of making sure that when they do compete and you do choose, they can't exclude you. And that happen, there must be an even playing field across the entire system. Now, to create such a regulatory fabric a fabric mm-hmm. for the system is a is challenge. And, and there are a number of constructs to achieve that. South Africa's regulatory framework isn't theirs. We've got a partial framework in mm-hmm. place which prevents schemes from, open schemes, from mm-hmm. discriminating against you on the basis of your health status. Mm-hmm. So if you had to look before... 1998, the market was deregulated very heavily by the Nationalist Party government before the 1994 elections. 1 January 1994, they deregulated the system. They, they said medical schemes and health insurers could basically underwrite you in any which way they wanted. They're completely free to do it. They left it so regu- unregulated that they could also strip profits out of anything that wanted to in the system so we had a for-profit health insurance system that could dispute by discriminating against they took all the way minimum took away the minimum benefits requirements for community rating etc and immediate immediately you had a surge in movement of, of people they closed down closed schemes brokers moved in got people into open schemes employers loved it because they could dump all their pensioners and all of their post-retirement liabilities, they could wipe out indirectly without having to directly negotiate with anybody by shifting them into a discovery or into a momentum or into a bonitas. And nobody over the age of 55 would ever have coverage in that environment because they could they could experience rate you. They could rate you on the basis of where you lived, your age, gender, whether or not you had a condition. Just whether or not you had a condition last week, mm-hmm. they, could, they could re-rate you. That was allowable up until 1990. So from ninety eight, the market was re-regulated to take away a lot of that ability to discriminate. So now if you wanted to join an open scheme, they couldn't turn you away. So there's a system of open enrollment in place. A system of mandatory minimum benefits was introduced. And so catastrophic care is covered. And you and cannot modify the contributions on a medical scheme on the basis of your health status. And no individual, so within that framework, there's some of the, the, that sort of discriminatory behavior was removed. There is also a system of late med- joiner penalties mm-hmm. that were introduced. So if you stayed out of a medical scheme for many years, that's also very bad. That's anti-selection. Mm-hmm. You're anti-selecting against medical schemes. Mm-hmm. You're only joining when you're sick. So medical schemes can penalise you if you've stayed out of the system mm. for a very long period. So that's that's the, the citizen right type mm. issue is coming through those kinds of regulation. Mm. question is whether or not they go far enough to stabilise the system, to protect and stabilise the Mm. system. Can't just put in these regulatory frameworks without making sure that the result is sustainable.
0: So, in your opinion, is the current kind of regulatory framework that's provided by the South African government, is it sufficient or is it what are the kind of challenges or gaps or is it performing well. Uh, It's performing extremely badly. I mean, so the discriminatory issues have been sort
1: of managed for a period, but there is another whole aspect to it, and that is the the way in which providers charge into the system and Mm -hmm. what's called supplier-induced demand. So all private markets are at risk that because somebody is insured, um, they don't feel the price consequence and they don't feel the cost consequence Mm -hmm. of of repeat visits or unnecessary treatment. Mm -hmm. So under that type of environment, providers who have a conflict of interest, they profit from every time you, they benefit every time you are uh, referred for an additional service. There are extensive kickbacks that operate within the system, from pharmaceutical manufacturers to doctors to hospital groups to um, uh, medical device suppliers have been involved in all sorts of vertical relationships with, uh, with hospital groups and with medical scheme administrators, pharmaceutical manufacturers of medical scheme administrators who are administering the medical schemes, but now have developed conflicts of interest with the providers. And so in this environment, the very people who are meant to manage the expenses of a medical scheme actually benefit from overservicing as well. So what we've, what we've got is a, is a market where we've got in, um, endemic cost increases, a massively inefficient private system that is oversupplied to an incredible level for what's provided. I mean, If you had a look at the number of ICU and high care beds in South Africa, we have four times in the private sector, four times the ratio of Switzerland. We are being so, not not necessarily overcharged only on the prices, Mm -hmm. but overcharged because we have referred into services that we don't need, levels that that drive up expenditure dramatically. So, our, our private hospital system is incredibly expensive. Our specialists are very expensive. Sur- certain groups of specialists are particularly problematic and uh, who are, essentially deal with sort of the large volumes of the sicker patients, but also those sort of hospital based mm. doctors, so your surgeons, anaesthetists, ops and gynes, and, uh, and pathology. Are are out of this world in terms of their charges. So there's no constraint in the system that's emerging to deal with mm-hmm. with this naturally because there is no regulatory framework for private hospitals. Mm-hmm. There is no regular proper regulatory framework for medical specialists mm-hmm. and doctors because they're regulated by the very very conflicted Health Professions Council, which is essentially a form of self-regulation. Mm-hmm. It is not independent regulator. Mm-hmm. The um, price aspect is negotiated loosely by the medical scheme. So it's purely price, not demand. Mm. So in that market, they can push up demand, it isn't, the, it isn't internalized mm. into the price. Mm. So when, when you buy fewer, you buy Samsung slower, mm. they might think, oh dear, demand is dropping, we must drop our price. Mm. And therefore the producer of the product is getting a, a signal mm. to modify their behavior. These signals are all dead the system. No quality of care signals, no uh, pricing signals or cost signals. The system is completely dead to that, and the consequences of that are predictable, and we're seeing
0: across the board. And and what are those consequences to, to what sounds to me like a kind of collusive behavior, right? It's the medical schemes who are setting prices effectively. I mean, correct me if I'm not quite getting it. But my understanding is that the needs or the demands of the customers are not actually playing a role in the availability or the access or the pricing of the services that they're getting. So that power remains in the kind of hands of those who control the insurance companies and the private hospitals. You know, where does that leave us in terms of what kind of role actual human beings who need health care have in the system? Well, I think that where we see the failure, if we go back to the sort of constitutional requirement, Mm -hmm.
1: this problem that I've just raised on the cost side is, uh, you know, the one is the problem on the coverage side, Mm -hmm. so that the unfairness, the the incentive to discriminate is there that Mm -hmm. needs to be dealt with. And then there is your access will also be affected if government fails, Mm -hmm. if the issue of, of costs are not addressed. Now, if government does not intervene, To create an institutional framework that prevents these things from undermining coverage then they haven't done their job so what uh, what there is a need to basically look very carefully at what is causing the cost increases and and uh, address them and there are many ways to do so but if we look at what's happened in policy there's been no regulatory intervention from this administration for over 10 years. So people have talked about national health insurance from 2007. It's now 2017. So for 10 years, people have talked about something and you really don't have anything more than the equivalent of a first-year assignment paper as a uh, a policy framework. There is nothing.
0: So are we looking at a future scenario of more and more privatization of health care and health insurance? Well, actually, the, the private
1: sector at the moment, I would argue, is, is um, uh, without being able to coordinate its activities and with so many conflicts of interest, is, um, is colluding to drive down coverage. But it isn't colluding to drive down coverage in terms of the numbers of people who are covered. It's colluding to, to bring down coverage by charging so much that what you're covered for declines while you're on insurance. Mm-hmm. So what happens is your benefits decline systematically and structurally. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the game that's being played, is that you're, when these costs go up at this rate, instead of actually trying to renegotiate prices or bring them down and negotiate a contract more efficiently mm-hmm. or find ways of getting the public sector to work on contract, they do none of that. They just, just slice the benefits. Mm-hmm. So, the, uh, so you will continue to see like 9, 10 million people covered. But their coverage of the 19 million people will will degrade mm. systematically over time. And in doing that, a lot of providers will lose income um, because they're going to have to start to fight for the balance build amounts, fight for the copay, fight in an out of pocket market, try and make you pay up front, find all sorts of ways of um, managing their cash flow and risks associated with that. So the damage really, I mean, it's something that can be addressed through structural reform. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'm saying is that at the moment, there is, in the absence of any government policy, the system will probably just drift into this incremental annual gradation, mm-hmm. where a public sector side quality of care is, is systematically declining as well, but for other reasons.
0: Mm-hmm. Most universities, to my knowledge, there, is, there are closed schemes, right, that all the university staff kind of have to be a part of. So what's the difference between that and an open scheme? And what would you say... Is more appropriate for people like us who work at public institutions.
1: Well, uh, so closed schemes have always existed, but the employer-based schemes were set up originally. They were the predominant mode of mm. of, uh, of health insurance in the sort of nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, and early nineteen nineties. The development of the open scheme, commercial schemes. Really, we're certain, now, now just to understand, medical schemes are actually mutual funds. They are um, not-for-profit and they're owned by the beneficiary, by the members. They are not owned by the, uh, the people who are often associated with ownership or control, of the administrators. The administrators theoretically contract, when I say theoretically, there's a sort of a de facto and a de euro situation. They contract to manage the medical scheme on behalf of the members. And they can be fired. So Discovery PTY Limited can be fired by Discovery Medical Scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Bonitas can fire Med Scheme, who administers Bonitas. Discovery PTY Limited administers uh, wits um, mm-hmm. but they do not own it. Mm-hmm. And they do not control it. Mm-hmm. The, so the scheme is under the control, essentially, of the board of trustees and, and, and an executive structure that may be set up. So, the, uh, so that's the first issue, is that there's a, a distinction to be made between these legal entities. Mm. Historically, the open scheme market emerged when administrators got beyond a certain size and a number of insurance companies entered the market to provide multi-employer products. So when you had a closed scheme, it was just one employer-based scheme, mm. Risk pools were quite small. If you, so there was a market that had developed for going and saying to people, close your close scheme and, and join, mm. and we will negotiate, a, uh, give you a, a, an arrangement. You've only got 500 employees. We can give you an arrangement. Mm. So you had multiple employer schemes, but they weren't open in that you could join them off the street. Mm. Only employers mm. could join. So these were what emerged during the 1990s in a fairly big way. And every scheme that every employer that joined joined on the basis of a specific con- contract, mm-hmm. and they could be underwritten when they joined. So in other words, the medical scheme could say, well, the rates that they're charging the people from this company are not the rates they're charging from that company because they're bringing a whole bunch of pensioners, mm-hmm. with them. and then they would charge them much more. Mm-hmm. Now, um, so the growth in the open schemes really came out of that. And then they, uh, during the mid-1990s and beyond, they, they Brokers into the market, and the, the standard financial services insurance model was brought into play, and, and which is essentially kickback, kickback-based marketing. And mm-hmm. that people were, uh, brokers were highly incentivized to move people from the employer mm-hmm. schemes into the open mm-hmm. schemes or into the multi-employer scheme. From '98, open schemes were regulated differently in that they would still be multi-employer schemes, but they had to accept individuals who mm-hmm. applied to join. So, if you go to the United States. You will find that there are uh, employer based contracts very much like that model that was emerging in South Africa, mm. where you can only join if you're joining via an employer, even if a Blue Cross, mm. whatever you join because your employer joins. Mm. But if you wanted to join Blue Cross off the street, they won't let you in. Mm. So then you have individual products that are created for people like that. And you're underwritten differently when you join as an individual. You're underwritten as a, a on the basis of your individual or your family risk mm. status, uh, before you can come in, and so the treatment of individuals is very
0: different to the treatment of groups. There's more space for discrimination. Presumably.
1: There is, and it's and it would have to be if uh, if that's how they were competing. Mm. So in South Africa, what what open enrolment did was it removed the distinction between. Employer group joining a discovery mm. and an individual the regulatory framework doesn't allow them to charge a different premium mm. You just choose choose the option that you join. Mm. So there's no discrimination They can't refuse you they can apply waiting periods mm. if you've been out of the medical scheme mm. period for a number of years or a number of months But beyond that they can't treat you differently to the employer group that has come in mm. so there's no distinction now between multi-employer arrangements and individual. We, they're basically the same thing. So that's an open scheme, but the commercial basis of the scheme is there. These are commercially oriented businesses, mm. which are, although they can't make a profit at the level of the scheme, that they can't distribute the underwriting profits of a medical scheme, they make a profit at the level of the administrator mm. and on the side and on managed care and all services, anything they can throw at selling to mm. the men. So there have been a, very, a huge number of incentives to manipulate the boards of the open schemes. You still have to be independent of the administrator. So the, if you had to look at how the regulatory process has worked over the last number of years, this is the, uh, you see that a lot of regulatory action has been taken against boards of open schemes where they're receiving bribes, they're, they're part of un, inappropriate relationships with the administrator, with brokers with uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers and distributors and all sorts of things like that with a confidence of interest of the board actually may diminish the oversight role of the, of the contractors to the scheme. So in many ways, one can say that the open scheme environment is, is actually so conflicted that you can't really distinguish between the interests of the administrator Mm. and the interests of the medical scheme itself Mm. in the open scheme
0: environment. Mm. So from the perspective of members, it sounds to me like a closed scheme would be preferable because members would have a little more say, a little more control in in the, the social aspects of the scheme. That's right. They can trade off things very
1: differently. So for instance, if the costs are going up and you need to kind of ration the benefits, You might do it in a way that still protects people much more effectively. You can design your contribution tables so that that pensioners are better protected rather than worse protected. Whereas an open scheme has every incentive to reduce the protection for pension, to reduce the protection for sicker people. Mm. So a closed scheme, if there's a, if there's, it it is much more a a sort of a solidarity model that is established, and where you've got control over the, over the, the. the ethos mm. of the uh, of the arrangement it mm. is not commercial mm. in in many closed schemes there 's no commercial basis to mm. it. The only commercial part that comes in is, is an administrative bidding to be the administrator mm. that 's about mm. it so so it 's a very different ar- arrangement. The mm. only problem with a lot of close schemes is that they tend to be small, mm. so they don 't have the same risk pools. Mm that universities are actually relatively large employers, but actually still relatively small medical schemes. Mm-hmm. Um, so
0: why is that? Why are the why are the medical schemes small even though they have large numbers of employees? Well, they, no,
1: it's because although they, they are large employers, even the, the size of the employee base is not really sufficient mm-hmm. to create a, a, I mean, it does create just borderline mm-hmm. sufficient risk pools.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so can you explain this concept of the risk pool and how that works in medical insurance? Because as I understand, it's got, it has something to do with the premiums that we pay and how that kind of siding scale is decided. It's usually linked to the question of risk, right, within. Well, well the, the
1: whole principle of insurance is um, that at the individual level, you don't really know the risk mm-hmm. or your need for healthcare mm-hmm. in the next five minutes or the next mm-hmm. year. Um, but on average, you do. Mm-hmm. So when you group a whole bunch of people together, what was completely unpredictable at an individual level is very predictable at a group level. That allows you to create an insurance arrangement where you contribute on the basis of the average use of the group, uh, on the basis that you don't know if you'll be the next claimant. And um, so what happens in in all insurance, certainly in health insurance markets, but in all risk pools, is that if the risk pool is very small, one or two claims can—you um, know—you might have the average premium correct, mm-hmm. but one or two play, so large claims create a, um, a cash flow problem mm-hmm. because your average is only going to be achieved over a long period. Mm-hmm. Whereas a very large risk pool, the average of a long period is the same as the average of the small. Year. So the so the the, the the possibility of claims volatility affecting. Mm-hmm. Um, the viability of a small risk the
0: problem. So if those schemes were to expand significantly, say, for example, as a result of an influx of new full-time employees on the basis of the new insourcing deals that have been agreed at Fits and UCT recently, what, might, what effects might that have? on the closed medical schemes that we rely on.
1: Well, I mean, there's a, so there's a question as to what, what the likely scenario is, because you've had the case in Vets uh, that Nahawu has argued that it wants to actually have a choice of going to uh, the open schemes, mm-hmm. and it wants all the new insourced members to be able to go to those open schemes and not to bits med. And it also wants to take all existing or members off its bed if you did that then you destabilize the cross subsidies within the, some of the cross subsidies within mm-hmm. the scheme if you brought in new people at that very low income which is appropriate you have to there is a certain low incomes the contribution that that person would have to make to join an open medical scheme might be a substantial portion of their salary and so The wits provides for income-based contributions, so there is an issue about actually improving the fairness of the overall contribution table to bring those groups in, they should be brought in. Now, an open scheme can't create income-based contribution table there, but a closed scheme can, because it knows your income, and and it can can therefore structure it, and it can make membership mandatory. All those conditions make it possible to have an income-based contribution Mm -hmm. table and to create certain cross-subsidies. So an open scheme, because it can't do, only, can only charge you flat mm. rates. Therefore, the only way you with a lower income might access something is to buy down your benefit. Mm. Whereas VitsMed can protect your benefit levels and give you a lower contribution. But mm. essentially, somebody in a higher income group is paying for mm. you. Somebody in the lower income group, a lot of them that are coming a lot of people that would come in at that level are young and healthy their claims which is likely to be lower so mm-hmm. there's a possibility of a, of a bit of a cross subsidy mm-hmm. into the risk pool because of that that uh, whereas a pensioners would be the large case of the system so I would say that there is a need given that type of movement in the system that that uh, a Witsman should be restructured mm-hmm. to accommodate the lower income groups better including a better regime as there are problems with the way it's structured it's its pensioner range, and there's too much of a cross subsidy on that side but a whole new rethink of the structure is potentially required for the interests of the of the scheme the only thing at this point though is that the we asking to basically have have the rules of it changed mm-hmm. so that you can choose your own scheme that's what they're arguing mm-hmm. for it's a decision they actually want to have implemented if that is done and you can check that's met because the risk put the, 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 the A closed scheme like this depends on a mandate, a mandatory arrangement to prevent what's called anti-selection. That's when people are joined opportunistic. So So
0: what kinds of arguments would you make for remaining with a closed scheme and for expanding it to make it serviceable to all employees' efforts no matter their income level.
1: Yeah, well I would I would say that the contribution tables have to be readjusted. So I think that we do have to have an option within the arrangement which is a lower benefit mm-hmm. level. So if there are employees who are paying more than fifteen percent of their income mm-hmm. into a medical scheme, I think that's problematic. Yeah. So there has to be a our subsidies have to work to such an extent that you do not have that, you've got a baseline level of protection mm-hmm. at that level. And the question is how many bands do you add up on the higher income levels to make that possible? Mm-hmm. It's quite possible that slight adjustments on the top bands, mm-hmm. an additional sort of band or so at the top level, will actually create that accommodation. Mm-hmm. That's the one type arrangement. Mm-hmm. The other is that that should be covering its students. Mm-hmm. It should be covering its foreign student. which should be joining with UCT mm-hmm. and creating a industry scheme. Mm-hmm. So you, if you look at a scheme like BankMed, uh, which is the second oldest medical scheme in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So BankMed is actually an industry scheme for the financial services sector, for banks. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, uh, I think it's now 101. Mm-hmm. And uh, so even when these guys are created even through the banks, they've, had, they've created a discovery or a momentum. They've stayed on BankMed, mm-hmm. the reserve banks on BankMed, mm-hmm. the standard banks on BankMed, FNB, all of them are on BankMed. So it's an industry scheme. That's that's a closed scheme. Mm-hmm. So that closed scheme actually protects the interests of its beneficiaries much better than an open scheme. It's effectively a form of multi-employer schemes related to an industry. Right. And that dealt with the problem of, of smaller risk pools around visual employer, mm-hmm. but it meant that they have a still much greater control over mm-hmm. what happens in that scheme. What UCT has done is that they don't have a closed scheme anymore, they went into an open mm-hmm. environment and then they made it limited the choice of who you can join, which mm-hmm. makes also no sense. Mm-hmm. The issue is that in fact we should be joining with CSIR, we should be joining with UNISA, mm-hmm. KZN and creating an, an industry scheme with a, with a very substantial risk. Pool. If you brought all of those together and you included students who are dropping off their parents' medical scheme, the discounted contribution, we have a very massive risk. Pool. The Department of Foreign Affairs requires all foreign students that are coming to universities to have medical aid cover or health insurance cover. They don't assess properly the insurance coverage that the students need need to be covered while they're here. Mm -hmm. Essentially, VITs should create that insurance. Um, So these are are the things that actually expand the risk pool. Mm -hmm. And when you've got that size of risk pool, it means that you can start to use the health assets, like both VITS and UCT own medical facilities. It's not just that they're in the public sector, we own the Donald Board. We have the VITS Health Consortium. We have a whole set of arrangements that are tied into the into the private sector. We we train the medical students. We have we own, run and train people for the services. We are jointly involved in the academic framework. What we have at the moment is a completely fragmented approach to what we're doing. We we almost can't believe that we're and we are the, one of the biggest schools training healthcare professionals in South Africa, and we we, we barely have medical
0: skincare at the mercy of the insurance company, and totally at
1: the mercy. When in fact, we are right at the coal face mm-hmm. of of healthcare. Mm-hmm. So the very, very well-developed structure around healthcare, so it just has to be organized around both the university as well as on its sort of external production. A lot of universities internationally do that. So they're, they're, they have their investments in their medical school are non-commercial in nature and beneficial to staff, students, and university as well. You know, they're, they're integrated. So I think that, that what we lack at the moment in South Africa is definitely at is is a vision around a major disciplinary area. Care is nearly a tenth of South Africa's GDP. Mm. It's one of the biggest money spinners for VITS. One of the problems in our system is VITS itself commercially benefits from the healthcare system without actually interrogating how it does. It runs drug trials vicariously for many drug companies. which which then South Africa pays a surcharge for when they come back to South Africa on patent. Mm -hmm. We derive no advantage, we've done no research, we haven't structurally taken that into account and how those practices actually impact on the drugs we're buying through our medical schemes. Mm No connection. So this is the issue. We've got this huge asset. Mm-hmm. We've got this massive potential capability, mm-hmm. but we treat medical scheme as a parochial athlete. Mm-hmm. And that's dangerous. We are in a position to think strategically about a major issue and uh, and take the action directly on the, on the health platform, on the, on, the, on the university platform itself. So I would say that, you know, looking, that is a visionary approach to, which integrates the academic into and the research Mm -hmm. you know the full academic program into holistic coverage and strategic directions Mm -hmm. for health policy and
0: so that we're at that interface Mm -hmm. that is a very inspiring vision that you've sketched out which i mean is very convincing to listen to but what kind of leadership do we need in order to get there and and where do you think that leadership should come from should it be a kind of ground up union-based kind of collective social action approach or is there a way that it can be kind of directed more from the top? Well I think the, I think the, at the from the bottom at the moment I'm
1: finding that the sort of the impetus is more toward the parochial rather than toward the strategic it's you know the money money-grabbing stuff from the whole oh, we've grabbed, get, get broke of commissions mm. and the uh, I don't think that, that the other unions have r- really been able, you know, they have given the information. I think that the University Council and the university just treats healthcare as an irritation. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the coverage aspect, mm-hmm. but the strategic vision is, uh, won't necessarily come from the university unless it's given to them. Mm-hmm. And I think that within the health sciences, they're also dealing very much with uh, with the sort of narrow. So at the moment, there is an absence of, of a sort of a, a natural development of a sort of a strategic focus. What I'm pointing out at the moment is that the potential is there. All the ingredients are there mm-hmm. for a strategic vision. That's much bigger. Um, this is a major area of investment of the university itself in terms of what it does. Mm-hmm. And, and yet it looks like it runs garage operations mm-hmm. in. in relation to sort of insured health care and so on. Mm -hmm. It leaves the students at their peril. Regulations introduced that will come into effect from April Mm -hmm. will allow gap cover arrangements to come in endemically into medical schemes, which means that with all of these commercial relationships that are embedded in the system and conflicts, open medical schemes will create deliberate gaps in the medical scheme coverage, which means that although there are mandatory minimum benefits and things like that, they will create gaps in cover and then they will so you could buy property insurance to cover. Them. So what you will then have, and they are underwriting, whereas you're not being underwritten on the medical scheme. You're now heavily underwritten on those individual products or group products. So this. They After complaints about the regulations, they said they can't discriminate on the basis of age. They can underwrite you on entry into the product. Mm. But the problem is that these products come and go, and you'll be underwritten every time you join a new. So, if over a period of 10 years you've had to change your, your gap cover product three or four times, you'll be underwritten on entry. So, if you now hit 65 mm. by the third time or the fourth time, you'll be underwritten as a 65 year old. Mm. And therefore, you're age written, but your medical skin can't do that. So the issue is that that coverage aspect is, deg- is going to degrade, mm-hmm. and it creates all sorts of perverse incentives, cost drivers on the on the provider side. Those insurers have no interest in, in how the costs; are. they just take a margin on the profit uh, on, on these insurance products, which are very profitable. Mm-hmm. So the, so this is now coming in in April, and will have a severe, long-term effect on open skin coverage.
0: I think you've mapped out these challenges and opportunities like exceptionally clearly for us. Last question, what can ordinary members of, of Scheme do about some of these challenges that you've sketched out? What would your advice be for those of us who are still getting our heads around all of this kind of big policy stuff? What can we do now or tomorrow in order to try and protect... Um, our schemes and to make them more fair and more just. In this case I
1: would say that we need to, we, that, that people need to have a very careful focus and uh, on restructuring the, the coverage that is available through vets and looking at how it can be expanded, seeing it as a, as a social risk pool, as, a, as a, there is an imperative to protect the people who work at mm-hmm. and their dependents and the continuation members when you, when you become a pensioner or when you become disabled and have to resign. All of those people need to be protected fairly out of the system. I think that there is, it's not sufficient for people only to, to relate to the medical scheme like that. They need to have a, a WITS vision, and the medical scheme plays a part in that WITS vision. And that needs to be developed. So, the, uh, so the, the issue there is there have to be... I say that the staff need to think about this a lot. When it comes down to creating particular strategies... If an impetus is created, they can be taken forward. It's not that staff members have to do everything, but they do need to be reasonably informed that you need to exercise their voice in pushing mm-hmm. it forward. And with the vehicles that are under their control, these were created for staff. Remaining at a huge distance to this and treating it as something happening somewhere in the, in, mm-hmm. in the distance, is, it will be problematic future we will lose our health it's not stable but we do have the potential of bringing everything into control getting vets to use its assets for its members mm-hmm. that includes the Donald Gordon it includes the arrangements that it can the supply arrangements that it can actually set up mm-hmm. it includes how we have how uh, health sciences mm-hmm. rethinks its role in relation to the sort of strategic mm-hmm. issues our relationship to the biggest public sector hospitals that we run mm-hmm. and that we are part of running as part of it all of those things as well as our relationships to other universities Mm. are all possible but but it can't be the medical scheme thinking Mm. it's got to be thinking.
0: cool so a great call to action there thank you so much for a really enlightening conversation
1: My name is Mahadi Butelezi. I used to have a medical aid and my family and I chose to go on to the hospital plan simply because of the excessive um, medical aid costs. And we then once again having four children had to reconsider um, simply because they were active in sports, active in a whole lot of other activities at school and they had injuries and they also became ill on more than regular basis and we then once again had to move on to a medical aid. But the cost thereof still till today remain excessively high.
0: To wrap up today's podcast, it's worth thinking about the potential for a restructured inter-university medical aid scheme that looks after not only academic staff, but all university staff as well as all university students. I'm pretty convinced by by the vision that Alex outlined for a medical scheme of this nature. If you have any thoughts on this, feel free to add your comments on our website or email us. By the way, the WITS Council just last week announced that it has decided to look into restructuring Vizmed scheme so that it will, quote, meet the needs of all university staff whilst considering principles related to affordability, fairness, equity, and choice, end quote. So if you're a member of that scheme, now is the time, as a member and effectively an owner of that scheme, to get involved in discussions about how it should be restructured.
1: The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of VUT University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at VUT. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Research, scheduling, editing, and production was done by me, Simba Rashe Wondem. Jager Merkel created our jingles. Mm -hmm.